So left-right comes from the French Revolution. Yes. Blue Labour says French Revolution was a fucking catastrophe. It was <laughs> a real disaster for which yes. France has never recovered. Or France, no. no. Incapable of no, I mean- realising its genius, incapable of being itself, constantly longing for redemption from a king who never comes, completely incapable of dealing with its migration, with Islam, just in France dies a death every day and the election of Le Pen is not going to resolve this. It's, it needs a socialist monarchy. Den unge man, han er revolutionær. The arc of the moral universe is Off. I was uh, just asking Moritz if he could give a brief introduction to you, Carl, and maybe you could return the favor, so to speak, to kind of ground yes. why, we'd, why we're having this talk. But Moritz, floor is yours first. Okay, hi, Carl. Uh, I always feel a bit like alcohol anonymous meetings when I <laughs> Hi, my name's Moritz. I'm a lord, I'm a Labour lord in the House of Lords. I think that's one peculiar thing about me. I set up this thing, Blue Labour, which is conservative socialist johan will push me to say conservative marxist not this time i'll give you a pass <laughs> but um yeah but keeps the class analysis and awareness of capital the the operations of capital which erodes senses of belonging of community of attachment essentially erosion of love uh, within the framework of the labor tradition you know of mm. association um and particular with a particular emphasis on on workers self-help organizations those sorts of things uh, you know there's more i could say but i'll i'll leave it there for the moment tell me about you yes well um i'm a recovering rightist in sweden i used to be sort of on the uh cutting edge of i, I guess uh hayekian rightist yeah. uh spectrum but I've, like many of us the last 10 years have been sort of a reframing and a reshift of politics in the main for myself. And thus reading, I think starting this podcast with you, Anne, has been sort of the journey I've been on. It's sort of been uh, confirming that we're doing this uh, sort of a political uh, wanderings through the desert. And I think the second ever podcast we did was on Blue Labour, yeah, which so. is uh wow. when we read your read your book so hence getting you here is quite the achievement for us really really actually enjoy that and uh, i think really talking to you about the english context of this or the british context of this really can help us frame this thing in sweden as well because it has to do with particularism in in a sense right a sense of belonging in a sense of history wow. I touched on it with Johan last week. We met for dinner. It was very nice. And I look forward, Carl, to meeting you. You too, Maurice. Two things. Um, the first of which is that in the analysis that I've developed, capital works uniformly, right? Capital mm. works in a universal way towards the commodification of human beings and nature and to the maximization of returns. And yet resistance to it is always particular. <laughs> it takes different forms. So that's yeah. just the first thing to, to, to share with you. The second is about Hayek. So the analysis that I've developed is in his social theory, Hayek develops the distinction between, you know, the nomocracy and the catalaxy and the mediating yeah. factor is tradition. But in his economic theory, he's only got open and closed. So the whole, so that's the fundamental critique of Hayek from the Blue Labour perspective is that he is not consistent in his application of the social theory to the economic theory. It's just what is the importance of institutions, of institutions in mediating, which he considers to be essential in the social theory, he doesn't apply to the economy. So that's just the beginning of a conversation. So there's, it's not a rejection of Hayekian, certain Hayekian concepts about the price system, about the rectification. So I use the Hayekian critique in relation to state planning, nationalization, yep. 
but I don't accept the Hayekian critique in relation to the role of vocations in preserving knowledge. I think that's really interesting. I think you once sent me the other day your talk about blue labour and history. You you had a talk in, I think, it was quite some time ago now, but it was on the in the Labour History Research Unit, the Anglia Ruskin University, it really struck me that I think a lot of my the people I, I call sort of comrades in arms have done the same journey from a very sort of Thatcherite position of, of viewing the state as as the enemy, basically from a position of an atom, atomized family or individual, and, and actually coming around to the fact that we can see the result of that sort of dialectics by now and the breakdown of of uh, basically the nation state and western democracies so i think a lot of people on the, on the, on the right would very much agree with you uh, and the, and i think a very few people are still in that sort of sense hardline thatcherites or i mean reaganites whatever that means in the european context but i i think people are longing to rediscover as you do the traditions of if not parties, then at least the ways of living and ways of ordering a society. Yeah. So that's the that's the interregnum we're in now, is that the mm. right has proved... Look, Johan and I went to this very weird ARC conference. <laughs> it was like this ideological orgy. It's only some people thought it was necrophilia and brought up Thatcher and Reagan time and time yeah. again. So. And Most the, Americans, I can agree. No, it was Australians, Canadians... It was more of an Anglosphere, oh. sort of white Commonwealth, we would say here um, mm. in Dubba. And it was remarkable to me that they could simultaneously, so they're Christian. So, you know, yeah. they believe that God created the world, but he made a kind of design for, and really it would have been better if he'd privatized it. You know, that's, <laughs> that was where they were. So there's a schizo bipolar. There's moral outrage on the right, but they can't link it to the market, you know, to the constant incentives to greed, to vice, to avarice, <laughs> to individual over-obligations. So we're in a position where, you know, where the old is dead, but the new is yet to be born in relation to this. Yes, the Kairos moment. Yeah, as Aristotle said, and the Gramsci tried to say. Exactly. Yeah. Carl sent me one of these episodes where you had a pint with um, Nigel Farage. Yeah, yeah. Discussed the, the coronation of, of King Charles III. And there was one point that you brought up where you said that the old is the new. And yeah. I think this is part of the paradox politics or politics of paradox that is central to understanding the relevance of blue labor. Yeah. Because a, a lot of what you described so far in your analysis of capitalism, Essentially, over the past two centuries, labor and the working class has to somehow manage to civilize capitalism. And you do that through self-organization or resistance, depending on the power relations at the time. But then you have this like wholesale onset of globalization from 1980s onwards. And most of the chief culprits are well known by now, Reagan and Thatcher, Clinton and Blair, the European Union and China. But what we liked about your analysis is how you bring out the city of London in particular, mm. the kind of re resistance issue here is not with regards just to a few decades into the modern era, but goes back to the first century and the founding of Londinium by the Romans. Yeah. So basically, it's this longer trajectory of understanding how radical Brexit and your role that you and Blue Labour played in it is with regards to not just the most recent cusp of globalization, but in this longer history of, you know, essentially what you described as the imperial emporium with regards to the, the sovereignty of the land as a whole. Could, could you speak to that point? Yes. So this is, um, Carl, this is a big one. This is a, a simultaneously part of the global story, but a very particular story to the development of the British state. So forgive me it's a long it's a it's a very long story but please i think it's absolutely vital so my historical analysis goes like this in the greek but let's go to the roman the roman empire uh, there was a, a dual economy which was land and sea the, the territorial economy and this is what we understand by the development of politics was actually in time very highly regulated so there was a fixed rate on rent. There was a price cap set on the price of bread called the Anonna. 
and the, and there were institutions set up, political institutions and civic institutions, but that mitigated in some way against destitution and inequality. So that that that's the political territorial side. Land land is expensive. Ruling people is expensive. You know, and the transportation of goods on land is is extremely expensive. But then there was another economy that was built around initially, you know, Piraeus in, in Greece, but where there was a territorial a maritime economy that was completely invisible and unregulated. So this was the development of insurance. So at the completion of the voyage, all the parties to the to the contract would burn would burn the contract. It did, didn't exist. But when you look at the development of Rome as a maritime economy, it essentially integrated the entire Mediterranean into a single maritime system. And then it looked north. And London is the final port established within that, that linked up with what we now call Germany, the North Sea. I believe that that you Swedes were blessed with being somewhat outside this system during its, <laughs> its formation. Yes. We just about got it. Scotland was also outside. That's what drives me mad with Scots when they say, oh, we've always been part of Europe. And I say, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hadrian got to Scotland and he said one word, inutile, useless. <laughs> <laughs> build the wall. Build, build that wall. <laughs> <laughs> I tread quietly because not wishing to offend their deep sense of um, national sensitivity. But this, this, this London that they that they built intrigued me because when I looked into it, it was so obviously integrated into their maritime system. They built an enormous wall around London, which people assumed for ages. It meant the opposite of what it meant. The walls built around London were built completely to keep the natives out. <laughs> you know, so, and it was open to the sea. And it was constituted entirely by, you know, foreigners, by Greeks, Spaniards, overwhelmingly Roman uh, and Jews, my lot, were, were hanging around. And it was completely under the authority of the emperor in Rome. It had no civic status within within Britain. And the thing is, is, is that the level of wealth that could be generated by maritime trade far exceeded any wealth that could be gained from either conquest or by territorial. So the whole senatorial system in Rome, where did they get their money? It was a complete mystery. You know, they used to walk around very conservative senators, you know, mm. dispensing money to the poor, building temples to, to Jupiter. Doing all these things the Roman senators did, huge banquets, uh, but the money was generated through maritime trade. So what I argue, going back to Johan's point, is is that globalization is not something that started in 1979. You know, mm. so obviously then the British Empire as was a maritime empire, a commercial empire in which London retained its status as three things. The first of all, the centre of arbitration between competing or conflicting interests is that the common law system and the and the courts in the city would adjudicate in commercial disputes. So it became the International Adjudication Centre of Maritime Trade Disputes. The second is that it became uh, the chief place for the raising of capital for maritime voyages. You know, and, and that uh, and that became extremely important in in the period of state formation, uh, raising capital for the railways, raising capital for all the different institutions that states had to build in order to conform to the model of state building. And the third area was it became the undisputed centre of insurance. So essentially my argument would be that you, you think the, the British state was working for the City of London, effectively. Mm. And the distinctive features of the development in the British state were the dominance of two things. The first was the Navy. The second was the Treasury. So Britain is very peculiar in really investing hugely in its Navy, rather than its army. It wasn't that interested in mm. army conquest until the middle of the 19th century. You know, 
the British state for 150 years in India, when it was run by the East India Company, had 32 civil servants in all of India. Oh, my God. Run uh, by the city. And, the, and you know, the, the difference between the French or the German or the Belgian Empire is huge. There was no so, Sorry, was this state run by the grandfather of Dominic Cummings? Yeah, well... <laughs> In some in some mutant sense, that, that may, <laughs> it, it, the the point being is to understand that that globalization is the evasion by capital of territorial regulation. Right, mm. that's that's the key. Is that if the rates mm. of return are diminished within the country that you're in, we will move it. The thing about the city of London car is that it evaded at every step any integration into the national polity it retained its status so norman conquest when william the conqueror came he conquered the whole country but he came to the gates of the city where they had a twenty thousand strong militia the city of london and he said i come friendly i come friendly to london <laughs> you can keep english as your language you can keep common law as your law the Normans never conquered London, right? And then all through the Anglo-Saxon, and then with Norman, all of those things persisted. And then with the emergence of the central British state, at every step of the way, the city blocked any nationalisation or sovereign control over capital. Really important story is that King Charles I said, you know, there was this mass migration to London. We had all these... It became one of the largest cities in Europe. Said it wasn't a city; it was just one square mile city of London. King Charles I said, "You must integrate Westminster, Finsbury to the north, Whitechapel to the east, Southwark to the south, into a city." And they just said no. And he said yes. And they said no. And he sent the army into the city. Well, that was the beginning of the English Civil War. Hmm. We ended up chopping his head off. You know, people forget that about us. We did that. We said no, and that was the distinctive yeah. development of the British state. That it wasn't an absolutist state. It wasn't built on unmediated sovereignty. And the city of London is part of the ancient constitution. You know, I it preceded the establishment of the state. So legally, the state cannot legislate for the city. The city existed prior. As did the church, as did the monarchy. You know, these these are the yeah. pillars of the ancient constitution. I mean, I could really go on, but any uh, Johan, any questions you've got about all of this? I think what's what's interesting when we come up to the present time is essentially that one would describe Brexit as a, some sort of reactionary movement with regards to progressive politics or integration in the European Union. But from this point of view, that the longer history you paint, Morris, it's, it appears more as if Brexit is the first point in time when the sovereignty of the country as such reacts against this city of London. This sort of like imperial being is for the first time stopped in its tracks by something that is more, for lack of a better word, indigenous. Yeah, or, or endogenous. Yeah, it's <laughs> something from within. Okay, so that's a that's a complicated story because the British state is real. The British state was founded very much along the lines that I said about the City of London, the centrality of the common law. Mm. the mixed constitution so you've got the 
commons is the democracy, the lords is the aristocracy, the church, various other, you know, uh, Oxford and Cambridge used to be represented in the lords, mm-hmm. you know. So you could almost call it like a vocational chamber. It was, it was, it was like that. So you've got the monarchy, you've got the parliament, and then you've got obviously the representation of locality was in the commons, of the local place was in the commons, and the sort of institutions of state were in the uh, were in the lords. With the monarchy, that's the parliament. That's so. So the parliament is not Rousseauist. It's not the national will. Right. 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 It's um, covenantal in a fundamental way. It's intergenerational representation of interests. The law lords, until Tony Blair idiotically removed them, were, were in the lords, to give you some idea. So now we've got this fucking Supreme Court, which is going the American-European way. That what, what was fundamental in Brexit, I think, Johan, was first of all, yes, it was the rejection of globalization, but it was also a rejection of a continental legal system that excluded democratic mm. accountability from its framework. Yeah. So it's a curious story. The story I want to take, I'm telling you, is is not exclusively about the dominion of the city. It's also about the development of a genuine polity within the country, mm. which was represented in Parliament, and the relevance of that in fundamental issues of political economy, as well as about immigration and other things, where people felt that they had no power whatsoever to hold. The politics was powerless, and even if, when it was powerless, you couldn't hold the politicians to account. So there was, it was a rebellion. It was a, it was a peasants' revolt. You know, they said, "Fuck mm. this!" And, um, mm. and what's amazing is, is they did it. They did it with no leadership. All the trade unions were supporting. Virtually all the trade unions supported Remain. Obviously, the city supported Remain. The universities were like madrasas of Romania. You know, they were constantly <laughs> bombarding us with, with children with placards. You know, yeah. And, and so that was an expression, to, uh, certainly, of the necessity of sovereignty in order to have a polity. And we're only just beginning to work our way through this. Mm. But there is the sense, I think, me and you have 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 sort of trod the path of, of uh, talk to a lot of people who also have the sense that the West is turning more and more absolutist as we speak in the sense of uniformity, in the sense of almost being, to go back to, to you referred to your own civil war, to a more Puritan sort of rule and not not only the propaganda and, and the sort of moral indignant the, the, and, the, and the sort of arguments used uh, for the... For, I mean, you have for a long time, I think it's a subtitle to your book, The Common Good. Yes. Mm. And, and and here I think we touched upon upon something that is... I must... It, it's, a, it's a beautiful paradox, uh, as you yourself alluded to, that you are a life period uh, appointed by the Labour Party. And uh, I would like to, as a slight t- token to the city of London, to yourself, the great uh, Bertie Wooster would have said it's it's a uh, uh, it's a beautiful and it's the the proper feudal spirit. But I think we could use that proper feudal spirit in a sort of radical sense because that sort of feudalism has a for most people has sort of a reactionary uh, tinge to it. But I think what you just alluded to is something that is rather pre-modern but also very progressive in the sense that it's very very empowering for people to have their own uh, representatives, not only in some sort of corporate or, or some sort of uh, parliamentarian way, but as a part of a whole. And I think that's a thing that's sorely missing in, in our time. And it's it's written about by great, I think, conservatism in the, in the 20th century, like people like uh, I could name Chesterton and, and some other people would, would be very much on this trail and say there's something. And, and, and even, I mean, great now pop cultural hero, J.R.R. Tolkien would be would probably agree with this as well. And and I think this is something me and Johan have been really uh, struggling with and coming to terms and to grips with. 
and I think it's very interestingly outlined by yourself when you talk about the sort of trade guilds and and these the sort of pre-modern phenomenon that are rather more active now in in I think Latin Europe than there are in in the northern Protestant parts. You mentioned, for instance, uh, a price review from bread, of, of bread, of, of there being a sort of uh, price, you know, you, you cannot lower the price of, uh, or, or you cannot price the price of bread to whatever you want. There is some common good in that as well, right? Definitely. So a blue labour in its form is very anti-revolutionary. Okay, so that's a really important thing. And not only because revolutions are inherently violent, you know, which which would be kind I of... I thought you were going to say they're European. No, well, we tried to have one. You know, we did chop the king's head off. And we did. We did actually abolish parliament and we abolished the established church. We played with that, but repented of it very quickly. I mean, we repented mm. of it in 20 years. Then you've got the restoration. But then above all, you've got 1688, which is a hugely important event which really does establish the primacy of the House of Commons within the ancient constitution, the autonomy of the City of London, very interestingly, mm. in 1688. And all of that. Um, England's a very paradoxical country. Um, so the first words of the establishment of the Church of England, I think, would be completely incomprehensible to Northern Europeans and Southern Europeans, which is we are the true apostolic church, Catholic and reformed, right? And people in England will go, yeah, yeah, that, that, that. <laughs> makes sense. So very, very interestingly, the most durable democratic institutional system that combines liberty and democracy drew on explicitly pre-modern forms, mm. um, kingship, Lordship, corporations, not in the modern capitalist sense, but but corpus. We didn't develop a central national plan. What Tudors did was that they endowed autonomous institutions. Uh, I'll give you three examples. They established the Greenwich Maritime College. Mm. And the Greenwich Maritime College had two specific functions. The first was cartography, the development of maps. And the second was the design of ships. And within a hundred years of its formation, Britannia ruled the waves, so to speak. It completely transformed the, the... But in many ways, it was a scientific institution. You know, it was uninterfered with politically. It just was endowed to attract the development of these things. The second example I'll give is the... In the, in the city of London, there was established the Royal Exchange, which essentially became the commodity broker for the Atlantic trade. But it's a very important thing because it became the international broker. So essentially, if you look at the, this is not really a Swedish story, but it is a Dutch and Belgian story, is that Antwerp and Amsterdam were completely subordinated to the city. They were the previous major um, centers of commodity pricing and international trade. It was moved to London. The, the third example I'll give you is the endowment of um, Trinity College, Cambridge, uh, Johan Bridges. Mm. So what did they, what, what did Henry VIII slash Oliver Cromwell do? They, they endowed Trinity uh, College and very specifically they were endowed professorships. So the endowed professorships were first of all in mathematics. And you can see the consequence of that in terms of Newton, in terms of the whole um, development of both maths and physics within the university. But the other thing they did was, you know, chairs in Greek, Latin and classical Hebrew. Now, it took 70 years, Carl. It took maybe 80 years. But they translated the King James Bible. You know, the Bible into English. This King James Bible became the formative text in the propagation of the English language as a uniform language. Yes. So these acts of state building, of location within the international trading system, were not the state creating ministries. <laughs> they were mm -hmm. the endowment of autonomous civic institutions. 
And, um, Morris, just a question there. So with regards to Trinity College, it's reputed that it, it was possible to walk from Cambridge to London on land owned by Trinity College. Yeah, so when it was endowed, it wasn't just endowed with a scholarship for these professorships. It was endowed mm. with land so it could protect its autonomy right. from the market and from the state. So it never became subordinated to commercial interests and it never was subordinated to state directives. This is the crucial feature of Tudor state statecraft. But but now that Cambridge can rely on money from the People's Republic of China, surely this model must be antiquated, no? Yeah, and and, and look, it's lasted 500 years. That's not bad. Uh, it still has the assets. I think it's that's the big open question, is that can these institutions in Cambridge resist their subordination to commercial state interests. Mm. Look, LSE is a clear example where it's completely subordinated. This is the London School of Economics, no? Yeah, but um, uh, there's still the, at least the possibility of autonomy within those things. I'm just kind of in a meandering way trying to address, you know, the, the issues that Carl was bringing up and, and, and doing it through the specific, um, in, you know, the eight the way that the ancient constitution shaped the anti-revolutionary nature of it, but the way that through knowledge and vocation and institution building, it could mediate and shape globalization in ways that strict state sovereignty and revolutionary state sovereignty within one country couldn't conceivably do mm. because of, of its statism. And yeah. its inability to comprehend the complexity of knowledge and those things. In that sense, it's very Hayekian. In that very sense, which he sort of reputed himself, right, or, or rather that he emphasised himself, and he reputed in in a realm of economics. In that sense, he yeah. So it's it's civically Hayekian, but not economically Hayekian. Right. So there was one thing I picked up also in your conversation with Farage in regards to the. The coronation that when the people give the power to the king and the king then swears in turn to defend the people or the interests of the people that uphold the common good. That what's interesting in that regard is is the moral dimension that people would go out and pay homage to their king out of their will, their love. Uh, as to come back to to your point about blue labor emphasizing that component that's been lost in politics, and and I also think it's interesting when how you bring up these older patron-client uh, relationships of, of endowment that it speaks to a sort of covenant as opposed to a social contract. That is, these are not liberal values. The, there, there, there's a dimension that liberalism simply cannot admit exists. And it's what is completely shocking to liberals of both an economic and social variety. It is it, to... To go back, Carl, to, to why I'm anti-revolutionary is there's always a suppression of continuity in revolutions. They, they, so t- to me, it's so obvious that the Russian Revolution led to the most successful Russian imperial project the world has ever seen. And it was Russian language, and it was the complete domination of Russia within that polity, and we see that in acute terms in the Ukrainian war, the the way that that, that, that is. But in the self-description of the Soviet state, there's nothing of that. You know, it was modernist, proletarian, you don't even mention, you know, the Soviet Union was the only state that didn't mention a country, you know, that it was an abstract imperium in that sense. And you could look at the French Revolution and you could say, well, this was completely the successful implementation of French imperial royalist you know, ideas. But they can't, it blinds you to continuity of matter through time, of memory through time, through this rupture. And that maybe is the problem you've got in Sweden with the predominance of Protestantism. Is the Protestantism is also a bit of a revolutionary matter where the individual is born again and renounces the previous self only to find that it's a little bit difficult to give up smoking and that sort of thing. So, you know, this revolutionary transformation is always to be treated with suspicion. Hmm. I, I, you know, that, that's, I'm just trying to explain, uh, Johan, why 
it's not that the revolutions are intrinsically morally bad, it's that they're idiotic in their denial of the continuities of history and the persistence of, of things through time. So to go back to the crucial point here is that, so liberals who are weirdly the inheritors of this revolutionary predisposition wish to turn everything into a contraction exchange. Whereas the primary matter of politics is covenantal, is mm. matters of obligation, of intergenerational continuity, of a binding of people together in a polity which requires constraints, you know, and limits. So the work I see it for Johan in Sweden is to rediscover the covenantal primary matter of the Swedish polity, yes. which you will find is far more, you know, to use their horrible language, far more diverse, wise <laughs> than <laughs> a notion of, you know, Vikings and cavemen, you know, beating each other. They had modes of mutual benefits were going on within this and symbolic sacrifices of peace would go on between clans and tribes and uh, but what's going on at the moment in sweden is that some fundamental violation has occurred of the very essence of the primary matter of swedish solidarity that has just been denounced by its ruling class as racist xenophobic whatever you want mm. excess maybe you know, carry on, shall we carry on? You know, and then yeah. you get Muslim migrants who are filled to the brim with their own primary matter, and they absolutely have no idea how to deal with it. <laughs> no idea how to deal mm. with it, talk about it, let alone engage in policy about it. I mean, so it's just hard to say that, that the covenantal way of thinking is a much more profound way of thinking about human beings as social beings. Carly, do you want to jump in here? Because I had another point. I think that's a. I think that's a beautiful point, and I think we 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 usually refer to the sort of Rousseauian cliche of the contact social as that language. What we actually mean is to find a covenant between. I mean, either find one, rediscover one, or create one for the people inhabiting in the country and for all peoples blessed with, and I say blessed with because I believe so, with a monarchy, I think this is absolutely, I mean, you don't have to be reactionary conservative to to understand what this does because, I mean, it's, it's very obvious to the people who come to a country like Sweden and who adore it being from somewhere else they tend to very much appreciate the fact that we have a royal family because that's some kind of institution that they can understand uh, that speaks sort of, a, I hate to use the word in this context, but universal language of, yeah. of, herit of heritage, etc. The work, the work of is, is, is huge. So look, I'm obviously got a sympathy, historic sympathy, Swedish social democracy. And Swedish social democracy is built in the tens, twenties, thirties, forties, even fifties and sixties with primary political matter, notions of solidarity, notions of mutual support, of compassion, of love. There's a reason why it became a popular, a really populist politics. Then it, it kind of disintegrated into some kind of rationalist policy unit where to quote you just now, it was suitable for the people who live in this country. Like It was like as if the people in Sweden were just an agglomeration of individuals who would be the beneficiaries of this rational policy. Yeah. Um, and, and they really severed themselves from the lifeblood of covenant, of being continuous with many, many centuries of Swedish attempts to live together in civic peace and independence. I, I think our, our interesting, actually, or, or pathetic, but but interesting nonetheless, example of just that, that in our, I mean, Joran Persson was the Tony Blair of Sweden, and and we actually got a national holiday, the first proper national holiday we ever had uh, under his rule, under his government. And actually, the, the official explanation for why we got our national holiday was we, we switched the second day of Easter 
to this day because there is a marginal tax benefit for the state that the Swedish people would work, switch these two days, and one was seen, deemed more productive, and hence we got a national holiday. This is the ultimate reasoning of people who don't have a history or appreciate anything traditional or or even have, and, and they don't see themselves as people who are guarding or keeping a, a covenant with the people. They're seeing, seeing marginal tax. Okay. I think there's the concept of the people, you know, and this is where the Burkean concept is, is completely relevant. The covenant is between the dead, the living, and those yet to be born. <laughs> mm. You know, and yeah. that way of conceptualizing the polity is so alien to a utilitarian contractual mind. I'm just talking, Johan, about... Yeah, yeah. I got it. I got, it. I got you. And that sense of connection with the dead and the yet-to-be-born is the very essence of, of a covenantal politics. Come, come, me brave boys, as I told you before. Come drink, my brave boys, and we'll boldly call for more. For the friends, they've invited us and say that they will try, will try. They say that they will come and drink old England dry. Yeah, so the question then is is a rather practical one. I mean, we can talk about you know educational reform or something until the cows come home. But um, how do we how do we get back to such a politics? Because it seems like well an uphill struggle for the century, basically. Yeah, well, look, this stuff's never been it's never been easy, but it's gone on in every generation. Look, we got to look. This is where Carl Johan and I link up on the socialist or Marxist aspect, which I think is mm. essential to the matter, is that we is the where the right the right are, are much more easily drawn to the language of this politics. And they can talk about the moral disintegration and they can talk about a nation in, in much easier terms than now contemporary social democracy is completely capable of doing that. Yes. And yet every time you have the Hayekian lacunae relating to the revolutionary power of capital. You can't renounce globalization. <laughs> you know, look at Trump, look at Boris, look at look at all the contemporary forms of this. So working class people are left insecure, besieged at virtually every single level, economically, culturally. So the work is precisely to articulate a conservative socialism that can that can hold these two within a, within, and this is where we've got certain traditions Johan, that I have not renounced. Um, so I, I talk about it in the book. I'm really internationalist. You know, I've got solidarity with all different forms of a politics that wish to embrace the paradox. You know, that we wish to have democracy and liberty. We wish to have sovereignty, but broker. You know, I think the big challenge for us. Carl is to articulate a different form of European federation, mm. you know, that is opposed to the EU, that would replace the EU, that is based on democratic sovereignty, autonomous industrial policy, but is tied by peace and is tied by some idea that human beings and our natural environment are not simply commodities to be exploited. You know, mm. that's the yeah. importance of association. The thing is, is to, to go back to our earlier point. And the way that I live, so that I'm not completely bowed down by the enormity of of what lies ahead, is is that the people are already there. 
Mm. I've been waiting for this. It's only the elites that can't articulate this. You know, I don't know what you found, Johan, in your interviews that you did with local, but whenever I go out into the country, the people are articulating, we don't want war, we don't want hate, we don't want any any of this, but they they want some security in their lives, some respect for the work that they do, their dignity of labour, some respect for the place that they live in, that it's not just a relic of human history. So... And this goes back, Carl, to the to the crucial point that I was trying to make about the class element is that don't underestimate corporate capital as a partner to progressives in the disintegration of the social that they are. Mm. You know, they're absolutely leading it. But Morris, could you just f- phrase that one more time so so it comes across? I think it's c- quite crucial. Okay, the corporate capital is in alliance with the universities and the other progressive elites into disintegrating any notion of a common good, of a covenantal solidarity. And they call it niche markets, diversity of markets, you know, to the young, to different racial groups. They're completely ahead on transgender and Black Lives Matter and could be a complete endorsement of all those mm-hmm. things. In other words, Carl, it's no longer the case that the business is in any way conservative. It's completely, corporate capital is completely committed to the hegemonic project, which is mm. the disintegration of solidarity and covenant. And also, I, I agree with this this uh, analysis, but also that it, it treats any sense of place as a, a sanitization issue, something that needs to be dismantled somehow. And it's, it's, it's um, perhaps a too particular example but i wonder here if one way of understanding because you mentioned earlier the rich history of sweden and the nordics and going into like well on the one hand you have this viking heritage but also this more labor movement great that caught to me of, of, of explaining <laughs> no, sweden no, there no, there's labor no, and there's no, vikings no, no but i was trying to say is that there's an <laughs> instinct within the labor movement that whatever we have in common needs to somehow be not just nourished, but created. And I come here to think of your own favorite team, Morris Tottenham, who are, if I don't understand, um, I'm mistaken, are honorary youth. Yeah, yeah. Look, the only thing in my society that now brings working class people together with any sense of solidarity and joy is football. Mm. Football. And, And it's a paradox because football has been completely commodified and yet it still carries this meaning. And it's still played by working class people. Middle class people can't play football. It's a really interesting thing. It's the only place where, where the interviews after the game, you hear working class accents. It's just, you know, pop music has become middle class. You know, it's all shit. But, but football is still something that goes on in front of your eyes. You can see who's good. You can see who isn't. You don't need experts to um explain the matter and it still carries with it a sense of place, you know, a sense of solidarity with with place and and a sense of and a sense of pride in that. I think that where I think where does where does the slur yid come from? Oh the yid, the yid so Tottenham you know, before the war there were other teams, I mean, who were heavily identified with Jews, uh, Ajax in Ajax in, in yeah. Holland was uh yeah. And there was a, I don't know about Sweden, there was also a team in uh, Copenhagen that had strong. So uh, Jews, when we arrived in England, this is the Eastern European migration, immigration, which was roughly 1880 to 1905, around those times. We came to East London, there was a team called West Ham, and they were heavily racist. They became the centre of like fascist stuff. And the next nearest team was, was Tottenham, which... So working class Jews loved football, like all working class people loved football. And then we became became known as the Yids. But the percentage of Jews who support Tottenham is about two percent. You know, that's mm. it's a it's an English football team, a North London football team. But when the opposition started calling us Yids, all the Tottenham supporters took it on as a sign of glory. So describe themselves as Yids, the Yid Army. The thing I love most is being a Yid. These are the songs we sing. And then the club tried to ban us using that because it's racist, you know. Yeah. <laughs> to which no, I mean, say, th- this is my point of the, sa- the, the need to sanitize any sense of place. 
Any sense of history, any sense of belonging, any sense of place. But that is the nature, I go back to Karl, that's not just the nature of the state, that's the nature of capitalism, which is to disintegrate place so that it's a frictionless system of movement. And so you need a sovereign state that can protect, support places that have been abandoned by capital. You know, that's the nature of the covenant and the covenant that's been and I, and I believe most people that have the same views or used to have the same views as I have would very much vote, vote for a party that could articulate those thoughts, even though they would see themselves as, as rightists. I think in this day and age, one of the most important things is this sense of place and sense of history. So then that part of our reconceptualization work, Carl, so... Left-right comes from the French Revolution. Yes. Blue Labour says French Revolution was a fucking catastrophe. It was <laughs> a real disaster for which yeah. France has never recovered. Poor France, no. No. incapable of no, I mean- realising its genius, incapable of being itself, constantly longing for redemption from a king who never comes, completely incapable of dealing with its migration, with Islam, just in- France dies a death every day, and the election of Le Pen is not going to resolve this. It needs a socialist monarchy, you know, so desperately. But that was the origin of left and right. And the point being is is that a genuine conservative, a conservatism, a covenantal conservatism, must resist domination of capital. You know, and so we need to dissolve in some ways the Enlightenment revolutionary left-right blocks and start uh, reconceptualizing politics in in around concepts like covenant, like solidarity, like paradox. Hmm. That's the new lexicon. I think that's really, really sympathetic. Actually, really sympathetic. And you, and if you can't take pride, a really astonishing moment of social democratic beauty in Sweden on the right you won't get it you won't i mean that that is part of that story and it's also part of the story is the liberalization of the church you know it's kind of disintegrated in some ways i i I wonder what the swedish church has said about gaza i don't have to i don't have to wonder i could i mean that's sort of right itself uh, it does, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And they don't have anything else to say about Christians in the Middle East, by the way. They never no, have. No, 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 no. But that's. But it's also. I mean, that's a church where you have elections to to the board of of, of governors. So I mean. Yeah, but what's I, the turnout? Yeah. <laughs> no turnout is nothing. Nobody, you know, democracy only matters when when it deals with primary matter. You know, when it matters. Yeah, coming back to covenant, right? Brexit referendum. You know, look it up. Almost 80% of British people voted. You know, they talk about, oh, vote to tell Suddenly, something mattered. Mm. Bang. It was, you know, if, if you had elections to pick the Swedish football team, there'd be a big turnout. <laughs> Coming back to, to one, one of the points you raised earlier with regards to what kind of incomes are taxed, and in part also in relation to Carl's question of what can actually be done ahead, there's one point that you bring up with regards to sovereignty where you talk of foundational economy. I think this is from, from your most recent book on blue labor and, and the common good, politics of the common good. I, I wonder if you, you could elaborate a bit further on, or rather, may, maybe to make the po- question more poignant, like what is possible in politics now or to, or to make people realize in politics post-Brexit as opposed to before Brexit? Okay. So I'm going to try and articulate this plainly. To me, the EU was just the biggest capitalist organization that the world has ever seen. So it essentially, Carl, it was illegal to oppose capitalism. Lisbon and Maastricht really pushed it to that level. And there was an issue, I think it was in the Danish port about dockers and, you know, where the trade unions were considered illegal mm. because they restricted free movement and competition. So in, in that sense, uh, a very big theorist for me, uh, Carl, is Karl Polanyi, uh, the mm-hmm. great foundation yep. is a 
extremely important, really seminal work, commodification politics, that that whole area. So what happened in my country, Johan, is is that with with joining the EU and then the direction the EU took, there was an inf- infantilization of the political class because politicians and civil servants didn't really need to make any decisions. If it was a difficult matter, this is an EU matter, but they played with fire because they kept mm. on delegating the important matters to the EU, and then the people in the country said, oh, well, fuck that. <laughs> but basically what you say is that the politicians themselves, by this kind of very technocratic machine, have denigrated themselves, and thereby the metaphysics of the political system they were supposed to represent. Exactly that. You know, I, I take a historical view of this, that this is an enormous shock to the existing Uh, political and economic class, where suddenly they've got to be accountable to the people. They're recognizing that there's malfunctions in the most basic state activity, you know, building a railway, running a school. So, you know, all, all of this is, is, is increasingly difficult. So uh, what I think is it's going to take at least 30 years before we begin to see the formation of a genuine statecraft, you know, because there's still, you know, well, what are you going to do about this? And what are you going to do? Uh, and a very reactive, febrile politics, you know, oh, we're going to stop the boats. We're going to stop mm. the boat, migrant boats. Oh, and then it's all blocked by the ECHR. And uh, uh, and, and it, it's all in inchoate. But what's necessary is a return, I argue, I argue it in the book, is a return to fundamental endogenous traditions of statecraft that's the endowment of banks local banks because mm. local areas carl have been denuded of capital the places i go to in the in the north and the midlands there's no money <laughs> it's been sucked out the tragedy being that these were the very centers of wealth generation for 200 years so the endowment of banks that are run in the locality the closing down of half the universities and turning them into genuine vocational colleges so that we don't have to rely on migrant labor to you know and then the foundational economy behind it is that this is forgotten in the smoke and mirrors of it all is that more than 80 percent of our economic activity is local you know we get bamboozled by the city by finance by high tech but that's just between 15 and 20 percent of You know, most of the economy is hairdressing, taxi drivers, local shops, you know, and those are being increasingly homogenized and capitalized and then commercialized. Um, so there has to be a, a, a move to underwrite the fundamental functions of what is necessary, water, housing, food, you know, the very basis of the existence of a human society. And uh, and I, I do that through this concept which read, which about civic trusts, mm. which is not a nationalized model or a centralized model, but whereby the water, the energy um, and the housing are, are carried on within the framework of a, of a distinct locality, an organic locality, if you like. We, I would restore the county system. So you've got You've got your village, your town, or your city. That's located in a county. And and the banks work within the county system. The vocations work within the city and county. And to restore the the fulfillment of the necessities of existence. You know, and, and then hopefully the understanding will come that to commodify and privatize the basis of existence has been a really mad thing to do. And that needs to be secured. That's the thing about the foundation economy is just to try to move the conversation away constantly from the export market to mm. the satisfaction of needs. And how we, because the state is responsible for the satisfaction of needs, but it, it's contracted out. So you've got a huge growth of capitalist countries, uh, companies yeah. that deal with shit like mental health. I mean, and deal with things like looking after our parents when they're old and ill. It's really bonkers. I mean, I'm just showing that, that mm. that's so the Thatcherite thing now being played out in the form of inverted human relationships and degraded work. And so the care workers, the people who are expected to care for your mum and dad are de-unionized and paid very little. And then they say, oh, they're being neglected. And then, oh, we've got to, you know. 
Maurice, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be uh, quite a bit closer to the German system than to anything of 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 heard or your vision that is. Well, yes, the post-war German system I consider to be a, a rare human marvel. You know, subsidi- Catholic social thought, um, yeah, yeah. The glory of Christian democracy and social democracy. So after the Nazis, I argue there was a suspicion of centralized state power. The Catholic Church and the trade unions were the two institutions that emerged in Germany with any social credibility because they weren't directly implicated in the Nazi regime. Mm. Uh, they built the Social Democratic and rebuilt Christian Democratic parties. And then, you know, this is this this is the forgetting thing, uh, Carl, is that it was understood by everybody in the post-war period that Nazism was caused by working class insecurity. You know, so mm. how do you find a space for the German working class? That was done through Mitbestimmung, you know, in the corporate governance. It was done through trade union recognition in terms of uh, negotiation of wages. It was done through handwork with the whole vocational system and regulation of labour market entry. It was then done through um, federalism, subsidiarity, if you like, in terms of self-governing cities and autonomous institutions. It was done through the Sparkassen, through the creation mm-hmm. of both regional and sectoral banking systems. Yeah. The tragedy is that when it came to the EU, Germany preferred a free market system, shock therapy. Mm. So you've got the solidarity movement in Poland, which overthrew communism, which was based completely on these ideas. But they had to undergo literally shock therapy in order Mm. to destroy solidarity. (laughs) Yeah, and Germany also artificially keeping its own wages low so as to increase competitiveness of the industries. Yeah, well, that was a look, I, that was a decision that they made um, in, relate, in relation to their own interests. That's marginal to it. You're allowed to do that, Johan. You, you know, that's that's a permitted strategy if you're trade. Look, this is a madness that I try to explain to Ukrainians. Having sovereignty doesn't mean that you exercise it all the time. You know, mm. this, you know, mm. Because you can get higher wages doesn't mean you don't take a strategic view that your industry will, that your interest will be replaced by not taking a pay rise. It was more that when it came to Poland and Eastern Europe and the rest of Europe, they weren't allowed to have trade unions. They weren't allowed to have industrial representation. They weren't allowed to have any recognition of vocation in the name of the free market. And now Germany is getting completely fucked by that. Germany is now surrounded by hostility mm. to its own crumbling system. Uh, and that, Carl, I, I view as a tragedy, as an absolute tragedy. Can I ask one last question? And it's not meant to be frivolous because I see a guitar somewhere in the background. Uh, and yeah. I know you've, you play the trumpet as well. Could you explain the, uh, and I think you've, you've uh, been eloquent on this uh, in other forums, but, but just for our audience, what's the, similarities between playing jazz and maybe blue labor or the blues blues maybe more (laughs) okay so one thing that okay i'll try and clarify my thoughts um okay so there's an element of life that is that is orthodox um where you have to learn in order to practice uh, craft or to do anything well you have to learn basic competencies you know so you as a musician, you, you, you've got to learn to play, you know, the scales and the chord progressions. But then there is the other aspect of life, which is improvised, which our political elites are completely terrified by. But for a start, you can't play jazz on your own. You've got to do it. It's, it's a, football and jazz are my two absolute mm. cultural delights because, you know, the ball rolls in football and suddenly it's just 11 working class guys trying to work it out. <laughs> and oh suddenly somebody kicks the ball and it hits someone in the head and it goes into the net and it's an own goal oh, and the game goes and it moves and great teams have the power of improvisation of dealing with the arbitrary you know what Machiavelli said half half for two half for tuna you know mm. the, yeah. you know so sports science is full of this bullshit about you know Science about and but and jazz the jazz the jazz the same 
improvisation. You know, to go back to Machiavelli, political leadership is the, he said, the ability to act in time, right? Mm. And then he adds, really interesting, with everything that means, right? And jazz is the ability to act in time, to go with the changes, to move with the improvisation. And politics is precisely, in, and they can't, look, look at what happened. Russia invaded Ukraine, and both Germany and France were still acting as if nothing had really happened. Mm. I mean, at least in your country, they said, fuck, we're going to join NATO. <laughs> you know, we're going to mm. do it now. Oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. But still, that wasn't so much an improvisation as a maybe a, a kind of desperation. But really, life and politics is about that ability to improvise. Now, you hope that that you, you have some understanding from history and got some experience to do that. But that is essentially, you have to act. And in many ways, what we're living through in England is we did have the courage to act. And now we're going, oh, we don't know quite what to do with that. But, but that's part of the thing is, is that it's not just reading the score. You've got, to, that's what I love with jazz and I love with football and love with politics is that in the end, it's an improvisation. And on your point there to to jazz, I'm also thinking of like blue labor more as as what you'd spoken of earlier, thinking of it more in terms of blues, a feeling of being blue. Uh since that's that's huge. So I mean that's another side of it, is is that life is incredibly painful and sad, but we tend to put people on medication if they feel sad or yeah instead of muddling through it instead of expressing the beauty of that and the defiance of a nihilistic or suicidal Mm. sadness you've got to live with sadness and if you can't live with sadness you you either end up dead or a progressive and you just deny reality Okay, least true thing ever said in the history of the world. Things can only get better. Mm. You know, mm. where are we here? Where, where yeah. has that been? Well, to paraphrase you again, the last thing you want your doctor to say is, it's progressive. Yeah, yeah last thing you want to hear. <laughs> Brilliant. Maurice, thank you for an absolutely oh, fascinating discussion. Oh, oh, lovely to meet you. I hope we can meet again. Johan, to reiterate once again, a covenantal friendship. Let's keep it. Let's keep it Indeed. down. Covenantal. Thank you um, so much. Talk soon. Hope to see you. I hope to meet, Carl. I really do.